Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. It's no surprise to say that we are living in what my guest today calls an age of anger. From the Middle East to Europe to India to America, we are seeing violent reactionary and populist movements either gaining political power or causing immense violence or both. The question, or at least one question, is why and how are they connected? In his new book, The Age of Anger, A History of the Present, Pankaj Mishra tries to answer that question. Mishra is the author of numerous books, and he's also a regular contributor to The New York Times and The New Yorker. Pankaj, thank you for uh, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I, I want to ask as my first question to you exactly, I think we all agree that we're we're living in a period with incredible stress and there's anger and things seem very unsettled. When did you decide to write this book and and why why did you decide to write this book now? Well, I was motivated initially by uh, the election victory of uh, Narendra Modi in India, which came as a huge shock to all of us in India, um, since this is a man um, who should be in prison, ideally. And here he was um, with the you know massive victory uh, voted, f- f- you know, including the people who voted for him included members of my um, own family and various friends around around the country, which made me think that something had started to go wrong with the democratic system in India, with the political economy in India, and not only that, not only in India but that this problem was to be observed in various different parts of the world, that people out of anger, out of disaffection, were making incredibly unwise political choices, were were choosing people who they thought would cut through all the processes of democracy and deliver on the promises that other politicians or technocratic elites had not delivered on. Well, at what moment or at what, I mean, I'm sure your, your thinking developed over time, but but at, at what point did you sort of think that what happened in India in 2014, in the spring of 2014, at what point did you think that that was connected to all these other things we started to see? You'd already had the rise of demagogic leaders in places like Turkey, but then you had Brexit, you had the rise of... Um, right-wing movements in Europe, and then obviously Trump. At, at what point did you start to connect these phenomena in your mind? Well, uh, you know, the far right had been rising, as it were, in Europe for, for some for some uh, years uh, before 2014. So that uh, was certainly, you know, something to think about when you were looking at countries like Turkey and India. And also, we tend to forget that the first instance of uh, demagoguery in the post-Cold War, uh, or post-end of Cold War world, was Russia. Here was uh, an experiment in unregulated markets, which ended terribly badly. Um, And out of the ruins of that experiment arose Vladimir Putin. Again, a certified demagogue who large numbers of Russians supported in one election after another because he promised to sort out the corrupt. He promised to sort out the oligarchs. So even before you know these things started to happen in, 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 in India and elsewhere, you had the example of a very dangerous man empowered democratically through the democratic process by people who felt at the receiving end of experiments in global market economy. I want to get back to the market economy stuff, but I want to ask because your book sort of traces these different currents that we see now back several hundred years to thinkers that you talk and write about. 
um, and some of the strands that they were working with in their time, particularly Rousseau. And I, I was wondering if you could sort of explain what what it was about him in particular, but also this group of thinkers that you're writing about that what what, what it was that made them to you seem so urgent to reconsider in the present? Well, I think, you know, they were basically uh, formulating the ideals of the modern commercial society that we inhabit today, you know, as, as it started to come into being in the late 18th century. Um, and someone like Rousseau was there uh, observing the contradictions uh, within these ideals. You know, let, let, let's not forget that the modern commercial society, as we know it, does not really start to become institutionalized until the 19th century. But the ideals are being formulated. And here is this man saying he's a he's an outsider. He claims to represent the people, as it were, the people who are going to be the target of, you know, these ambitious socio-economic uh, plans of re-engineering. And here he is saying, look, uh, you know, I think this is going to leave a lot of people um, very discontented. And um, this might, you know, turn into something uh, quite the opposite of what we want. I mean, you know, this this whole project of individual freedom might uh, go very sour. So I think it was important for me writing this book to go back and revisit those debates and then to trace the political consequences of that disaffection that Rousseau identified through these decades in the 19th century, early 20th century, we are more familiar with when when, when that kind of disaffection erupted into horrific wars. But then all through the 19th century, there were revolutions, there were revolts, there were young men going off to fight in remote places. A whole lot of energies unleashed, which could not find a way of essentially expressing themselves, um, you know, decorously within domestic politics. I guess the, your argument now would be that these energies which have been released by globalization or how we conceive of what we term globalization in 2016, 2017, uh, that those energies, we don't know how to deal with them. And these resentments have bubbled forth and the sort of modern market economies that we live in haven't given us um, the tools to to deal with that. Is that essentially what you're... I think I think that's that's a fair summary. Um, I would argue that we in, invested a great deal in the idea of economic growth, of economic progress, and simultaneously, you know, in the promise of equality. And as it turns out that economic growth, uh, the benefits of it are monopolized by a small minority. And that has been the case again and again. Uh, except that when this... Uh, kind of monopolization happens simultaneously with the greater attractiveness of the ideal of equality, people get more and more frustrated. You know, I think in a way what we're seeing today is a paradoxical effect of the success of the democratic ideal, that more and more people believe in the ideal of equality and want equality and prosperity. They want to share in this new prosperity that they see around them. Um, and when they feel excluded from it, the anger is is all the more greater. Well, let me, let me ask you a question just to relate this to the election that we just had here, which is that you say that more and more people want equality. I mean, that that would be one way of looking at it. I think a counter argument would be perhaps what they want is not equality, but they don't like seeing other people 
rise up to a different level. And so you have a woman running for president. You have an African-American who'd just been president for eight years. You see a society emerging in a multicultural society in all these ways that it hasn't emerged before. And that is what creates resentment rather than this promise of equality that, as you say, is not being met. Well, I think it's related. You know, what happens when that promise is frustrated, when when it's it seems unfulfillable, that all kinds of pathologies are unleashed. In fact, you know, Russo talked about this, that if you live in a competitive society, that instinct to compete with and against others um, and to outshine them can quickly tip over into a desire to f- to to basically uh, degrade other people, to dominate other people, and to see other people being humiliated or being defeated. So, in many ways, uh, the frustration, the anger, you know, caused by inequality can take off in all kinds of different directions. And you know what what we saw the sort of politically toxic consequences of that. So, but but I, I mean, I assume you're not arguing that things like resentment or racism or frustration arose simply because of globalization. I mean, these things have existed for millennia. Yeah. But what I'm curious about is the way in which you think that globalization per se and just sort of the modern world and modern economies we live in have forced these resentments to the foray. They've aggravated certain tendencies that have always existed, as you say, you know, since since human beings have been around. And, you know, religions, philosophies, uh, all kinds of worldviews in the past uh, were extremely alert to these tendencies and saw the danger inherent in those in those tendencies and, you know, prescribed ethical codes, moral codes to keep them in check. But you ha- if you have an economic system which thrives on competition, which thrives on envy, which thrives on vanity, then you're going to end up with a figure like Donald Trump. You know? so, so there is a kind of, um, in a way, he is the logical culmination of a whole lot of tendencies that were you know, given legitimacy in, in, in our kind of, especially in the last, I think, two, three decades, I should emphasize that, you know, that, that this whole idea of competition, of competing with other individuals in the marketplace, that replaced all kinds of previous notions of progress, previous notions of national improvement, you know, and these 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 were kind of collective hopes. So what, what sort of things were you talking about? Well, there? I'm thinking of, you know, social security, for instance, social democracy, social security in this country, social democracy in Europe. When people talked about progress, when people talked about, you know, better life for themselves, they were thinking in terms of classes, they were thinking in terms of nations. I think the big shift in the last three decades has been thinking about all this in terms of this atomized individual who's supposed to go out there, reinvent himself or herself, upgrade their skills, retrain themselves for every new change in the economy, compete with other individuals. This is all about individual agency, aspiration, ambition. I mean, these are these are the kind of you know buzzwords of our of our time, entrepreneurship, you know, that everyone should be an entrepreneur. And I think these kinds of demands, which are deeply, deeply unreasonable for many people who are, you know, temperamentally unequipped to, to, to embark in this race for status and one and of them wealth. is president, in fact, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I want to ask you about that because one of the things that's interesting is that one of the consequences of what you're discussing, this sort of push for an individual drive to entrepreneurship and realize your own potential, so on is I think what you see in America and 
with Brexit in the UK and a little bit in India, I know less about Turkey than you do, but that that essentially you see a sort of collective group identity of majorities forming around that. So here in America, you have this sort of, you know, I guess the phrase that people use is identity politics and you see sort of an identity politics developing around whiteness and around things like that, which is seems like an ironic consequence of what you're talking about. Well, I think, you know, uh, because people find intolerable this burden of individual freedom um, in the way individuals have been emancipated to compete in the marketplace that many people find themselves unequipped, unable, unfit to compete in the marketplace. What many of them end up doing is look for shelter, for refuge in these tribalist identities and and look for a, a man, preferably of their own tribe, who will essentially teach a lesson to the people who have imposed these ideas and ideals on themselves, who have kind of reconfigured society so radically, who have made them feel so powerless. So here is a man who will compensate for all their deeply felt feelings of inadequacy and, 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 and powerlessness. So in a way, we move from an emphasis on hyper-individualism to these tribalist identities and these kind of assertions of group identities. Let, let me to go back to something you said earlier about sort of we've forgotten certain values and certain ideas of worth that people used to have. What else are you talking about? And I, you can refer back to your book because you, you also talk about this in the book. What, what were these some of these philosophers and writers that you're talking about? What what values do you think that they sort of spotlight that you think have sort of been discarded today, even if they're values that you yourself or I wouldn't disagree with? What, what sort of things are you talking about there? Well, I think, you know. Uh, notions of solidarity, for instance, um, compassion. You know, Rousseau uh, is someone uh, who is very interested in this notion of compassion. He thinks it's a very important human trait. So he emphasizes that um, there are all kinds of people in the 19th century, Kierkegaard or Tolstoy, who also talk about these human needs and, and aspirations, which are not going to be fulfilled by modern politics or by modern economy. But these tend to be, you know, and then, of course, there's a longer tradition of, of, of the German romantics and then the American transcendentalists, the, and, and, and then, of course, you know, Ruskin, Gandhi is part of, that, part of that tradition, who is actually pushing back against these notions of the competitive society built around the ideas of endless economic expansion and saying human beings need a lot more than this process of continuous expansion, continuous change that, you know, our, our, our souls, our inner lives are being uh, deformed in the process in, 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 this, in this sort of rat race, as it were. So there's a whole critique building up all through the 19th century, even as the world is being transformed, even as industrialization, urbanization, all of this starts to happen at breakneck speed. You have novelists, you have Dickens, you have Zola, you have all kinds of people critiquing this, 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 this whole process and pointing to the extensive evidence of dehumanization, brutalization, people living in slums. And I think, you know, we need to kind of reconnect with that particular cultural history to also understand what is, what is happening today um, when, you know, those kinds of 
those forms of brutalization or dehumanization have assumed um, treacherous political forms. You know, I, I think one of one objection that people have raised to your book, and I'm curious how you answer it, is the is this idea that you know one that these people like Rousseau were not actually providing a a model of a world we actually want to live in, and so I, I'm wondering the degree to which you feel like other societies in the past cherish these values in a positive way, or more so that they didn't, but these things are still things we need to think about if we are going to create better, fairer, more decent societies. I think, you know, every society in history has its own, has had its own center of gravity. So, you know, to think that we inhabit some, you know, incredibly privileged spot and that our achievements are un, un, unparalleled. This is always a always a mistake, you know, because we are historically minded, of course, have been since the last 200 years here. So we are in a position to compare ourselves with, with other society and to say, oh, hey, you know, we live longer, we have modern medicine, we are much better off, and so on and so forth. But, you know, we don't really know, there's no evidence to indicate that people alive around the time of the Buddha, when I think life expectancy was like 30 or 32, were less happy or less contented than than we are. But the important thing to realize is that the last 200 years, uh, and this is something I emphasize in the book, have been marked by some of the most extraordinary violence in human history, some of the most extensive destruction of the natural environment, some of the most extensive dispossession of human beings. If we accept that, and we have to, these are facts, then we have to ask, well, in what ways were these previous societies able to live with the natural environment? How did they manage to avoid such extensive violence in the past? And I think that is the question to ask. Uh, and, and, and perhaps in the process of thinking or reflecting on this question, we might be able to engage in, in a critique of our own dominant modes of politics and, and economy and say, where are they failing us? Uh, are we too narrowly focused on the idea of economic self-interest? Uh, are we too narrowly obsessed with ideas of rationality which exclude other human needs, uh, such as solidarity, identity, belonging, community? Um, and I think, you know, that would be a fruitful discussion to have. I, I think the, the the response to that would be, well, you know, you have these facts that you were saying about how the amount of violence in society, but people would point to things like women's rights or things of that nature, modern medicine, as you mentioned, where it does seem in large chunks of the world, obviously not the whole world and poverty rates in certain areas that in fact, things are getting better. Uh, I mean, it's a tough argument to make in the last six months, but that, you know, neoliberalism, which you critique in your book has actually delivered material benefits and changed the way people live, especially groups like women or homosexuals or and, and how would you how do you respond to well, that well i think you know uh this is a this is an ideological claim uh if you if you break this down if you look at uh, where has new liberalism in particular delivered i'm not saying that progress has not happened or progress is not happening in large parts of the world in on all all those ways that you've just described what i'm pushing back against is the idea that we can credit a particular way of you know organizing our economy such as neoliberalism with those achievements uh, let let me give you a counter example when were the greatest achievements in women's rights made in china in the last 100 years it was under the communist regime if you look at 
the situation of women in in China today practically every documented or every every piece of documentation that has been done on this subject would say that their rights have come under severe attack in the last 20 30 years of economic liberalization now people have been lifted out of poverty in large parts of um, uh, China and India but can we really seriously credit new liberal capitalism for that achievement those achievements were built in the case of india at least on a whole lot of investments made by the formerly pseudo socialistic state in you know building up uh, local resources and what we are seeing today is kind of long term consequences of those early efforts in china it's a much more complicated system of economy you know they have state capitalism new liberal capitalism does not really exist in the way it exists in in large parts of western europe and america so that's why i'm sort of suspicious of those kinds of claims because they're essentially ideological claims they're not examining the complex ways in which progress happens in in the ways in which progress happens patchily unevenly as a result of various factors a lot of which we might find unpalatable such as a brutal regime like like uh, uh, mao zedong's which actually enforced uh, or or guaranteed a degree of freedom for women through extreme brutality so uh, i think you know this notion that uh, progress just because it has happened in say gay rights uh, or, or or transgender rights in a particular part of america will also happen in in some other part of the world if new liberal capitalism or the conditions of new lab, liberal capitalism could be recreated there now that is an ideological argument progress in other parts of the world will happen due to a confluence of completely different set of factors altogether um well so the, let me ask you then i mean i what what are, is there something i mean you don't talk about this so much in the book but just asking you i mean what exactly is it that you were recommending in the sense that i know you're not recommending we go to a regime like mao's and i know you're not recommending i would imagine something quite like the early pseudo socialist regime of india post partition um sort of the first 20 years of the cold war that era but what is it that you think we can achieve and we should try to achieve in practical terms to realize some of the things you're talking about and you know get away from some of the awful trends we've seen in the last few few years i think you know as a writer my basic struggle um i feel is against cliche and ideological thinking so if there's anything i'm trying to do in the book um which it is actually to cleanse at least my own mind in the first instance of any trace of ideological thinking or teleological thinking thinking that this is what happens here so this could also happen there uh positing cause and effect in in simple minded ways and i feel that these habits of thought this way of thinking about the world is actually what has led us to this sorry pass is that we devised over ambitious schemes of salvation um first you know for for a long time it was the the communists who used to do that and 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 then in the last 20 30 years and 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 in a way those tendencies have been my main target because that's when i grew grew up and 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 came of age um and i found myself ranged against these powerful ideologies which insist that theirs is the only way of doing things 
uh, and and that progress is guaranteed progress is 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 certain if we follow this particular formula if we follow this particular prescription and i'm saying look let's have a more complex view of the world let's bring in history into this conversation let's look at you know what happened previously when people thought in these ideological terms and this is a story that just never ends well because human experience is too complex is too diverse people conceive of the good life in diverse ways so you know if i were to boil it down to a single sentence i would say a respect for human diversity and an acknowledgement that people think of their lives and how to pursue happiness in just very different ways and there could be no one way of conceiving or thinking about it one of the one of the very few world leaders who you say anything nice about is pope francis uh, can can you say why well partly because you know this is a man who represents a um, much older uh, way of thinking about the world uh, than say anything that has emerged from the modern world since the since the enlightenment and here is someone who's very much attuned to the needs of the human soul um so this is where that particular arena is where so much of the political pathologies we see today emerge and here is a man completely particularly focused on this particular very very volatile realm and i feel that no politician no economist no intellectual uh, writer historian maybe novelist too uh, has is pre- preoccupied with that with that important realm of human experience to the same extent as he does and he speaks of the poor he speaks of the environment he speaks a language that i think we've kind of really lost sight of or at least again in the last 2 3 decades um i can remember a time in the in the 1950s i wasn't around but you know you read those books people like nibur they were they were still important in in national politics there is no figure like that today in 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 the united states not in america so much of social democracy in in europe was a construction of you know people with very strong religious interests with very strong spiritual interests those figures have just disappeared you all have sort of these technocrats people like tony blair maybe he's an extreme example look at them schroder ola i mean just one suit after another um busy going through those revolving doors between politics and business so here is this man in the vatican you know representing this very ancient institution talking about things that we don't know how to talk about anymore in 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 politics and in in our, in our intellectual discourse i had a very smart liberal catholic say to me this was a couple weeks after the election that even though he as a liberal catholic or i don't know what the term is was was sort of pleased by the what he called the secularization of american society and the way in which certain what he considered moralistic values were no longer prized and he was very happy about these things but he also said that there is a certain amount of judgmental moralism that people do not have because they do not think in a spiritual or moral sense anymore and in an earlier era even if it was more retrograde in all these ways we never would have elected a man like Donald Trump and i've been thinking about that ever since i heard him say this and i mean i don't know what you make of that but but it's a, it's an interesting question i think for people like myself and i assume people like you who do not want to live under some sort of right-wing catholic regime or whatever other um theocratic regime or even something approximating that 
No, I think we we really have hit a kind of um, moral nadir with 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 someone like uh, Trump, and I feel like we haven't reflected long enough on just how this man became the president of the United States. You know, we we, we know, haven't no. We, <laughs> well, you know, we know that in a in a superficial way, but is he the culmination of you know our deep fascination with all the things that this man represents in a monstrous form, whether it's wealth, it's fame, celebrity, success at all costs. You know, it does not matter if you violate the dignity of women or, or any individual for that matter. You, you, you shout at people on your television reality show. You make a huge thing about firing people, humiliating people. And, you know, this is something we've kind of lived with and thought, well, this is all part of our secular culture. This is all, you know, this is all fine. This is even entertaining. This is all funny. So in a way, uh, he, he, he is a kind of slap, collective slap in our, in our faces. Um, this man who really represents the worst tendencies of a secular modern culture, you know, becoming the most powerful man in the world. When he started doing the birther conspiracy stuff back in 2011, you wonder if people in our culture or people in the business world, if they had made clear to him, you know, you're not going to have a show on NBC if you're launching racist accusations against people. You wonder if this whole thing would have just been cut off. And the it, fact that that didn't happen, that this yeah. guy was still going on Saturday Night Live, he was still yeah. a figure of fun, says something very disturbing. It does. I mean, it, what it says is success is the only thing that counts. You know, the, the, the reason why people kept talking about this fellow, reporting on his every antic is because, you know, they could get better ratings. That was at least the story in the early parts of his campaign. Um, and, you know, they went along. He, he, we all became, in a way, accomplices in his, in his, in his particular game. How many times have you checked the Amazon sales figures on your book in the last month? <laughs> now, you don't have to answer that. I um, resolved, actually, last with the last book um, to not play the numbers game. So you can check this with my publisher. I haven't asked them how many copies they have sold, and I have not checked my Amazon um, I will page. do some follow-up reporting on that. Uh, <laughs> let me just ask you one last thing before we turn to current events, which is, there was a piece in the New York Times by Mark Lilla, who's a smart uh, sort of political philosopher, someone who writes on political philosophy, talking about identity politics. And uh, his argument was to, to make a very hash, to make a hash of it, essentially, that this obsession with identity politics had doomed the Democratic Party and it was hurting the left and so on and so forth. And I, I was wondering what you think of this notion of identity politics and specifically because we're at a place where, as you said to me 20 minutes ago, people need to realize things like group identities. They need to think about these things in new ways that they're being subsumed to individual desires. But you have this very strange thing now where sort of all the parties of the left and country like India, country like America, all through Europe are dependent on these multicultural, multi-ethnic coalitions to attain power. And so I was wondering how you sort of think about those two things together. It's a big, complex issue. I mean, I feel that um, identity politics is too often caricatured as something ridiculous, as something we should not be uh, paying attention to because it's just a minority preoccupation and liberals tend to cater to these people excessively. 
thereby angering a whole lot of people with different needs who feel excluded simply because they're white or simply because they belong to the majority. We, we've heard this argument in a different form in India where the Congress was accused, the ruling Congress, of pandering to Muslims, of engaging in pseudo-secularism and in minority politics, vote banks. That was another version of this identity politics. Congress argument. being the main left of center party. Exactly. And, and, and you know, one reason why the Hindu nationalists came to power was they were successfully able to persuade large numbers of the majority community that their interests were being ignored uh, in favor of these, 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 uh, these, you know, uh, very dodgy Muslims. Um, so one has to remember that that particular historical experience when talking about uh, the situation of identity politics. Here, yeah, I mean, my feeling is that look, um, if you construct racial hierarchies, if you relegate people, if you allocate people degrading places in that hierarchy, and say that you are excluded because of the color of your skin. Uh, any kind of political assertion by those excluded peoples would inevitably have a racial caste. Uh, it is as a black person that one would assert one's dignity and one's identity. And that is what a series of people from, you know, Muhammad Ali or Martin Luther King, they've, they've all done that. Now, to say that this is identity politics is forgetting this this sort of complex history of race relations and forgetting who first started playing this game of identity politics. Who was it that brought these identities into being? Um, and when people make those kinds of claims based on the color of their skin today, what they're basically asking for, you know, let's really make a serious effort to get rid of this structural violence and inequality in our societies, which, you know, victimizes, still victimizes um, um, a century and a half after slavery ended large numbers of people in the African-American community. And I just don't think that is the demand that should be described as, you know, just another version of identity politics. It's a demand for justice. Um, there is, of course, an argument to be made that the government seen as, you know, too focused on these issues and not focused enough on, say, the plight of the working classes is a government that is vulnerable to a populist upsurge. Now, that is true that we have seen, we've seen that. But we also have to accept that the government has not been that focused on the plight of African-Americans, yes. for that matter. Right. As if the African-Americans being shot by police is the number one issue that we've been obsessing exactly. about as a the Congress has been obsessing about for the past eight years. And Absolutely. finally, this is being rectified. The, the one thing you brought up, which I thought, which I, I'm curious to get your take on is, is there something, I don't want to use a phrase like human nature, but is there is there something about majority groups that when they are becoming less powerful, immediately makes them more reactionary? And I've thought about this in terms of India with sort of the Hindu majority as, I mean, India has always been a multi-ethnic society, but in, in recent years, and you see it here as the Democratic Party is becoming more the party of multi-ethnic groups. And the same is true in Europe with left of center parties. And the degree to which, yes, it's 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 uh, it's neoliberal economics or it's not taking care of the working class. It's all these things, but it's also 
that when majorities feel threatened, they start acting in inevitable ways. Is that is that something you've thought about? I think it's very pronounced in, in, in this country where um, people who have essentially enjoyed, uh, broadly speaking, the, the fruits of American prosperity since, since 1945, who are now confronted with the prospect of downward mobility. And that is a frightening, frightening prospect for people who've had it, you know, relatively good all these um, all these decades, all these years. Now, in India, of course, you see that with the upper caste Hindus who, when they felt threatened by the political assertion of uh, lower caste Hindus, started to gravitate to Hindu nationalist um, formations. And, you know, that was the sort of big shift that started to happen early on in the 1980s and, and, and 1990s, which is, you know, in a way gave the kind of intellectual fuel in many ways to the Hindu nationalist movement. So definitely majorities or people who enjoyed power for long periods, unchallenged power, when they feel themselves menaced by either something from below or in the case of America, one has to remember that, you know, with jobs growing elsewhere to China and to different parts of the world, there's also that fear of the dark-skinned foreigner getting ahead, not to mention the dark-skinned foreigner also launching assaults on your country. Uh, so in addition to fears of assertive uppity minorities, there's also the fear of the upstart uh, Chinese, the upstart uh, foreigner who is getting ahead of you in the economic game. I, I want to ask, since you travel about as much as any person I know, and I, I was wondering... I've had people from countries where they have live, lived under strongmen or have traveled to countries with strongmen say that Trump was less surprising to them, that they reminded, Trump reminded them of, you know, growing up in Russia or growing up in Turkey or growing up somewhere else. And so I was wondering sort of how you, how you think about Trump in terms of different places you've traveled with figures who he's compared to, like Erdogan or like Putin or like Narendra Modi in India, uh, how you sort of compare him to those figures and, and sort of what you make of him having been in these different places? I think, you know, in terms of personality, of course, there are a lot of similarities in, in the way uh, Trump managed to seduce large numbers of people with his tweets, for instance, you know, uh, speaking above the heads of the conventional media, politicians, political parties. Uh, this is something uh, Modi did in a way. Um, in fact, break, breaking free of affiliations within his own party, setting, setting up a Twitter account, which became hugely, hugely successful and constantly tweeting, making this vital connection to millions and millions of people out there. So in a way, I think his, his sort of campaign really was centered around this incredibly clever use of, 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 of social media. So there are those similarities. But I think at a different level, uh, Trump is a sign that the United States has rejoined a history of the modern world, which is primarily one of crisis. And, you know, this is also the story of all these other countries that you just mentioned, that we have been lurching from crisis to crisis all these decades. And one reason why we are vulnerable to uh, strongmen is because they offer quack solutions. And so we can understand, you know, much better than a lot of people in this country for whom crisis is a sort of one-off thing which is resolved and we move on. There's a narrative of progress here which people have strongly believed in. 
But I think since 9-11, that faith has been eroding um, the financial crisis and then, you know, the slow economic recovery, still a lot of people feeling left out from that recovery. And I think in a way, what we're seeing is that America is entering, just becoming like any other country and re- rejoining the modern world from which in which it had occupied, enjoyed a preeminent position. And Trump is a sign that it is now like any other country out there facing uh, political problems of the kind that the rest of the world has been struggling with all this time. Right. I, I think the, the the difference would be, well, I think there would be two differences. Tell me what you think. The first is that if Trump is another Berlusconi, Berlusconi did not have nuclear weapons and uh, the power that Trump does. But but the second is that um, he seems more untethered from restraining influences or even from from movements. He seems almost completely his own thing. Now, I I, I mean, I, I, there are a lot of different countries to talk about, but Narendra Modi seems more part of his party than Donald Trump does. He seems like they're people he listens to and trusts who we would say some of them are in the reality based community or whatever the whatever the phrase is. Trump seems a little bit more outside um, the circle of sanity at some level. Does that does that seem right? Or do you think no, that think some of these right. guys are completely? No, I think that's right. I mean, in a way, you know, he's a sort of typically American psycho. Um, and in many ways, as we as we discussed earlier, a kind of characteristic product of certain cultural tendencies, which are to be observed more clean, clearly in this country than in any other country around the world. So, you know, what Gertrude Stein said once that America is the oldest country in the world since it was the first to be modern. And in a way, only the United States could have produced a figure like Trump. So in that sense, he's sort of, you know, quintessentially American. So this idea that he's, you know, uh, propped up by a foreign power that is not really American in that sense. Um, I, I find myself resisting that because he really, his personality is, is is sort of combines so many traits that we have observed in in the in the kind of the the more vulgar aspects of the commercial culture here. And again, his disconnection from any mode of politics, doesn't read a book, hasn't read a book, I think, um, probably hasn't read the book he's supposed to have authored. But he definitely hasn't read that any of those books. <laughs> so, you know, you really have a, an extraordinary figure who's essentially a salesman who's been seducing, fooling people all this time. And he's managed to seduce people on, all, all, all on, you know, on his way to the White House. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I will give one more plug to your book in the hope that he buys it. This is Pankaj Mishra, and his book is The Age of Anger, A History of the Present. Pankaj, thank you uh, so much for coming into the studio today. Thank you, Isaac. That was a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, take a few moments to rate and review the show. I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. <laughs>